0: It's the first Monday of the month, and we're responding to your questions. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 449.
1: Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing Human Potential.
0: Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahovia. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. And almost always the first Monday of the month, we turn the show over to you and respond to questions that have come in from the audience. And you can submit your question for a future Q&A episode at coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. I am joined today as I am most months when we do the Q&A episodes by Bonnie Stahovia. Hello, Bonnie.
1: Hello, Dave.
0: And yes, we are married, as someone asked me recently. <laughs> because that does come up occasionally. And I I do forget sometimes that people have just started listening to the show. And if that is you, welcome. We're so glad to have you here. And uh, yes, Bonnie and I have been married for a very long time. And she's had her own incredible leadership journey through being an officer in a publicly traded company to consulting and now in higher education. What have you not done? You've done just about everything now.
1: Well, and I think sometimes people get surprised that we're married and we have so much in common in this area. And that is we met getting our master's degrees and then we went on to get our doctorates together as well. So we kind of have this love for this leadership thing.
0: And for each other.
1: Yes. And for each other too. We
0: we met in a team building. I I kid you not. This is the story. We met in a team building class. So we're
1: like, yeah, let's build a team
0: and uh, get an A.
1: And we did. Yes, we did.
0: So let's tackle a few of these questions, because that's probably going to be most interesting to folks versus the story of how we met. So the first question here is from Susan.
1: She writes, I'm a director in a large organization who reports up to senior leadership. The senior leadership team is a team made up of almost entirely baby boomers at or near retirement. I also have a number of baby boomers on my team that report to me I'm running into some struggles with those reporting to me in terms of preparing for retirement, some starting to slip in their work quality in a senioritis type attitude. Another major issue is having both senior leadership and those reporting to me having trouble letting go and trying to muscle projects to completion before they retire. It can be a stressful place to be as a middle manager, trying to balance all the emotions that come with retirement changing priorities as leadership moves into this generational turnover and those of us who are next preparing for a new possible role. It would also be helpful to hear how to manage someone close to retirement who believes they have earned the right not to care anymore or feels entitled to certain things based on their contributions to the company, or working with those near retirement who are trying to handle getting ill, memory issues, slower output, aging in general.
0: Susan, thanks for this question. Wow, there's so many places that we could go with this. When I read your question, the very first thing that I thought of was a conversation I had a number of years ago with a leader in a client organization we were serving at the time. He was in his, at the time, probably mid-70s, and he had negotiated a position within the organization, which he had served for many decades, to serve part-time. And he was a trusted and wise leader, had a tremendous amount of experience and wisdom that the organization valued tremendously, and also had found a way to set up a work relationship that really was right for him and his stage of life and his family and for the organization. And I remember having a conversation one day with him, and he said, the biggest word for me right now in my life is relevance it's really important for me to stay relevant. It's important for me to stay relevant to my family. It's important for me to stay relevant in the workplace. And I have structured my work and how this looks in the hope that I can continue to stay relevant and do the things that I would love to do to be able to contribute in the ways I want to contribute. And I think about that interaction a lot when I think about, as we all are on this journey of aging, of course, but also as leaders and organizations of how do we answer this question of transition, which is what you're asking, Susan, and all the things that come along with that. And I think a lot of organizations see this time as a very still, as a very black and white. I am here today, and I'm gone tomorrow because of a mandatory retirement age, because of a pension, because of the way we do things around here, or some version of all of those. And I think there is a place in many organizations, not all, and perhaps not your, Susan, but culturally, to sometimes ask the question, how else could this look? Could this be something where there's a longer-term transition, where someone changes the the way they work or the nature of their work? Is there a way this could look at how we do this part-time? Is there a way that a job or role changes as a person is nearing their age of retirement or making a transition for some other reason? And I think in a lot of cases, there is the opportunity to do a little bit of that. And so that would be my first invitation to you, Susan, is thinking about what are the ways that could look like and what is important to the people who are in your organization who, like my client from years ago, really do want to stay relevant and are interested in doing that. And how can you help them answer that question of what does their work look like over the next six months to a year? of maybe their final year with the organization formally, what's important to them? How do they stay relevant? How do they contribute to the organization? And that may be a very, that may be a similar thing to what they're doing today, but it may have, there may be added pieces of it. There may be a different focus. There may be more of a role on coaching and mentoring, which I've seen people, many people do over the years that can work out really well. And that context can be really useful. I'm curious what Bonnie thinks on this. And I I do have maybe a thought or two on the, just the, the HR piece to it as well.
1: This is such a challenging situation to be in. One of the things I know for me, I need to think about is to watch for my own biases. When I was early in my career, it was a very young company. Looking back, the quote old people then were in their forties, and I am nearing fifty here in the next couple years. And so, it's it's you know it's hard for me not to lose perspective on those things that you know now I I am no longer at my institution. For example, the young spry chicken that I once was in relation to other people. So that's one thing we have to be careful of. We need to watch for our own biases. And it sounded a little as I read yours that you could potentially have some. And and I certainly hope that that doesn't sound super insensitive of me to say, I have them too. And so we just have to name them and be able to realize that sometimes they can get in our way. But sometimes the perceptions you're having are outright problems and ones that do need to be addressed. Dave was talking about, you know, the performance management aspect of it. I would encourage you talking to your HR team, you mentioned being in a large organization, there are oftentimes really skilled people in HR who can help us uncover these biases and also help us think through what performance management might look like if really there is an issue here that needs to be addressed. It's it's important for two reasons. One is anyone who is this is in the United States, but anyone who's over 40, if you were to terminate their employment, they actually can sue you for being part of a protected class. In this case, it's being over the age of 40 is considered that that old old person protected class, meaning that we can't discriminate against people based on age, and that's kind of the magic number there. So for legal reasons, we want to be concerned if we are looking to target people who happen to be also classified as old. And then secondly, for ethical reasons, we don't want our own sense of what it means to bring one's full self to the work and to be doing a quote unquote good job at work to have us not be able to see people's contributions that they really do make. And a lot of times we can really tap into the sense that many people have when they're coming upon retirement age of wanting to leave a legacy and thinking creatively about how to shape their jobs. Maybe they don't want to work a full day. Maybe they don't want to work 40 hours a week, but can we transition and have more of a longer term sense of how they can tap into their desire to have that legacy and to leave a mark on the organization, but also to to free up the salary quite candidly to be able to be used to bring other people into the organization and also to be able to tap into their nobler motives of, you know, wanting to contribute and, and make a difference and this is an incredibly hard transition for people to make it is just now at this stage in my career where i'm working with more people as they retire i'm working more with more people who have passed away candidly i mean getting the cancer diagnosis or heart you know heart issues are such a challenge i mean there's lots of reasons why People may um, leave work, lots of reasons, and, and we need to be sort of nimble in terms of thinking about how to handle that. Perhaps nimble was the wrong word there. <laughs> we need to not be as nimble. We need to slow ourselves down and think carefully and purposefully and with intent about how to treat these people with dignity And also how to maintain standards. They just may not be the high standards that you expect for yourself and you expect from people who are at other stages in their career. That's one of the things that has been important to me to think about that my idea of what it means to work hard my idea of what it means to be a success doesn't have to translate to 100% of the other people. My goodness, we don't need too many of me in any one place. That's not, that's not going to be helpful. I tend to always want to move fast. And so sometimes you're describing situations where people don't move as fast as me. That can be helpful for me if I find a way to still retain my own strengths, but be able to appreciate the strengths of others.
0: I mentioned I may have a few comments on the HR version of this as well, too, Susan. You know, if, if someone is, has been with an organization for a long time and they're in their last month or two of, of work and, and they're quite naturally disengaging a bit, as all of us do when we're about to make a major transition, I, I think you, you manage around that. That said, it's also not okay for an organization to have a performance issue ongoing with someone and to not address it. And one of the reasons I mentioned this is because you mentioned like some of the issues that come with aging, of getting ill, memory issues, those kinds of things. At the end of the day, I think most of us as leaders want to be thinking about does the person meet the job expectations that are there in front of them? And I would really caution you, and I think probably most HR people would caution you against getting too much into the well, what's causing this? Is it this an aging thing? Is it what? At the end of the day, it's about. Do they meet the expectations of the position? And sometimes can you make a reasonable accommodation if they're they're not for whatever reason in order for them to still perform the work? But at the end of the day, uh, people do still need to meet the job requirements of whatever the job is. And if that's not happening most of the time, and and with very few exceptions, you as a leader are really called to address that. And one of my favorite ways to do that, uh, and I think is a really helpful model, is the accountability dial from Jonathan Raymond. And he is a really helpful process for us of beginning with just making some mentions about what you're noticing, about what's going on in the workplace, and about performance that may be a starting point for you of thinking about, you know, how do people work to meet the job requirements that they need to meet? So I will link to that model so that you can dive in on that if that's helpful to you, Susan. Let us know what you find useful and what you decide to do. Our next question here is from Nellie. Nellie wrote in and said, I've been considering whether or not to stay in my job for several months. I recently had dinner with my boss who unfortunately had too much to drink and then made several statements which indicated that the situation was not going to improve and it was time to go. Some of these statements would be clear HR issues. This is not the first time this has happened and this boss has previously been reported to HR for bullying behavior. I'm ethically torn as to whether to report this incident to HR in hopes that it may help the coworkers." In, that are being left behind or just resign without saying anything. I'd like to maintain a good relationship with this company as I may have some opportunity to do work in another division. I don't want to jeopardize future opportunities, but I feel an ethical dilemma as to whether I should report my current boss's poor behavior and judgment. What are your thoughts? Oh, Bonnie, speaking of HR situations, tough one.
1: It's really tough. And it's being made even tougher because I started watching this new television show on the service, Apple TV Plus, called The Morning Show. And it is all about the Me Too movement and is quite the drama. And so you realize every episode, like you're getting a new layer of some of these harassment issues that you didn't see in prior episodes. So I'm all twisted. I'm so afraid to answer. (laughs) Question in any way, shape, or form, such that if we were to watch another episode of this story, we might learn more. In all seriousness, there you you mentioned HR issues. That's such a broad thing for me to try to consider. I'll, I'll say candidly, I do lean toward you being less helpful to the situation to do this at the stage you're at. If you quit, and that's the that's the time when you decide to share about this inappropriate behavior. There's not that much they can do with that in the sense of you've lost your credibility. And I don't mean you're not a credible person. I just mean by the time you get to the point where you're quitting a job there's less at stake for you. So people's reports that they might share about trouble that they had in the workplace aren't taken as credibly, at least as far as I've seen. By the way, sometimes they take them too credibly, and then they don't listen to the people that actually work there. But but there's all kinds of sort of issues that come up with the timing of you wanting to deliver this message. And also coupled with the fact that most of us want to still maintain good relationships with prior employers. So that complicates the matter a little bit. I would lean toward telling you that perhaps you don't bring it up, but if you are asked directly and depending on how concrete this information you have about the person being reported and depending what bullying behavior means, sometimes bullying behavior to people really means they just have a tremendously different personality than I do. And so we have to really think about if these are personality differences or if these are truly things that start to put the company at a legal risk. And that's very hard for you to evaluate by the time you've gotten to the point that you're in. It's just really hard. That being said, we, we don't have a lot of details on this. I could be completely wrong. You should maybe go in tomorrow and Im- immediately go to HR. I mean, that's why that's why this show is so good in the sense of it's just getting me thinking about how complex these things are and how many parts of the puzzle we can't see as we're only seeing our part of the story. And one of the things I like to remind myself and remind others whenever... <laughs> Whenever it's appropriate, we do like to be the heroes in the movies of our own lives. Like that's the way that we try to tell our story to ourselves. Like that's that's generally can be problematic to us, but generally how, how we try to tell our story. So I guess for you, just recognizing also that this this is complex, you do put yourself at risk if you decide to report it at maintaining that kind of relationship with the company, and that you really will have lost credibility because you're sort of. I'm out of the game now, and so it it changes the strength of your words when if you do decide to share this information
0: Nellie, I'm with Bonnie on this. There are, of course, always exceptions. I am generally of the belief in most situations that once you have decided to leave a company and made that known, you're done trying to make them better. It's just the political power is gone. It's not likely you're going to affect change. And potentially, and I've seen people make it worse for the people who are left behind of then having to pick up the pieces from an awkward situation. Again, this may be an exception, but that's generally where I've seen people get themselves in a bit of trouble or make it difficult for others. The other thought here is, how has your HR organization handled things like this before? When people have brought things to them, when you've brought things to them, what have you seen happen? Because I wish I could tell you, Nellie, that you could take something like this to your HR organization and that every HR organization is equipped to really handle the complexity and the difficulty of navigating this well. Absolutely. There are some amazing HR organizations and leaders, some of them who listen to the show, who would handle a very difficult situation like this with care, with respect, would find a way to help the organization and navigate that well and do that in a very caring way. And there's also Sadly, many examples where that would not happen and HR would make it worse. And I generally like to think of, okay, if I'm trying to predict what's going to be future behavior, I look to past behavior. How does your HR team handle stuff like this? Do they do a good job or is it very hit or miss? That would also be a factor I'd consider if I was navigating the complexity you're navigating on what do I say or not say before or after I leave on how to handle this of What's likely to happen? What's the outcome? Does this make the situation better for me? And does it, like you said, make the situation better for others? And by the way, I love the heart in your question of thinking about others. I hear you saying, I've already made my decision. This is about how can I help other people? And I I love that heart and that intent. And so my invitation to you would be, think through, like, depending on what you did, what's likely to happen based on what's happened before? And will that be truly helpful to people, or is there another way to potentially do that? So Nellie, I hope that's helpful to you in some way, and I just wish you well in navigating such a difficult situation.
1: This next question is from Tiaga. Dave, how do you manage to read a lot of books, and how do you remember the key messages from those books and make use of them when the situation arises?
0: Thank you, Tiaga, for the question. Tiaga is one of our Academy members and asked me this recently, and I thought others might benefit from what I had shared with him. Yeah, (laughs) to read a lot for the show. And I think about the model from Harold Jarky that Bonnie and I stumbled on several years ago. Uh, Bonnie has had him on her podcast. We will link to that. He has this wonderful model for personal knowledge management, and the model is seek, sense, and share. And I definitely prescribe to that in the professional reading that I do, uh, which is most of my reading these days. And uh, so here's how it looks for me. The seek part of that process is going out in the world. By the way, this is not his words. This is just how I interpret it. I'm sure he would say it differently. The seek part is going out into the world and finding things that'll be useful to you for your learning. And for me, the way that that works is I am always trying to find things that are answering a problem, often answering a problem for our listeners or answering a problem for our academy members. Probably half of the episodes that are aired on this podcast are directly because someone in our academy or a listener in some way has asked me a question that I don't have a good answer for, or I'd like to have a better answer for, or I just am really interested in seeing if we can get them better ideas around. And so I am going out to find the best book, the best expert who can teach us all on how to get better at something. So the seek for me is how do I answer a problem? not just. Do I walk into a bookstore and what cover of the book looks interesting today? It's how do I answer a problem? The sense for me is then the actual reading. And I've gone through now, and many of you have seen this who listen to the show, of I will highlight as I'm reading, I'm thinking about the work, I'm thinking about the questions I'm going to ask the author, because that's often the situation I find myself in, where I am going to be talking to the person who created the work afterwards. And so I'm thinking about that. That's my sensing process of thinking about what is meaningful to me, uh, what's helpful, what's useful. And then the share piece is, in my case, having a conversation with the author and then sharing that conversation with all of you in a way that I hope is helpful. And so those three things for me make the material I'm reading very relevant because I'm answering a problem for someone else often. I'm getting into the details of it, and then I'm doing something with it actively uh, after I've gone through that learning process. Uh, There's no better motivator to finish reading a book than having an interview with someone two days later and a lot of people going to be listening to it. So that has worked well for me. I'm not suggesting, by the way, that most anyone else do it that way. But what I am suggesting is using that model to whatever you're reading, starting first with how does that, rather than just picking the most popular book of the day, how does this answer a problem? What's a process I can go through to help me? And then what's something I can do with it? Either I write up an article and put it on LinkedIn, or I bring it into the next staff meeting and I share with my team. Here are the three or four things I learned from this book, and let's talk about a couple of them. Or sharing it in some other way. And those three steps have been really useful for me in recalling things because they're relevant And because I've gone through a much more in-depth process with someone's work and book rather than just casually reading it and not doing anything with it.
1: I have a few other thoughts because I also subscribe to Harold Jarky's methodology of seeking, sensing, and sharing. I have a couple of maybe beyond the theory of how that works down to a few pragmatic things that I do. Dave mentioned having a podcast. I have one as well. And I do really love it when I can find the time to read the books of people that come on the podcast but I sort of have these days a fatalistic thing like I can't keep up I can't keep up so that's not as motivational to me because I I give up pretty easy just because that's you know, one a week. It's just I can't keep up that kind of a pace. But I do use a tool called Goodreads. And Goodreads about, I don't know, three or four years ago was acquired by Amazon, but it allows you to set up a reading challenge. And I like that. So for most years, it's around 24 books, give or take. And that really helps me stay focused on that's a doable number of books for me. If a doable number of books for you is six, great. I mean, get get some kind of a goal. And if it helps you to track it using a digital tool like that, it can. It, it definitely has pushed me to get there. In fact, as of this moment, I'm not quite hitting my goal. And so I, <laughs> it's pushing me to go, okay, you got a few more weeks and then you need to do it. The other thing is I like to do digital reading. Some people prefer a book that you can hold in your hand. And if that works for you, great, do whatever works for you. But to me, being able to take that wherever I go and traveling, you know, these days the planes are getting smaller, Dave. I don't know if you've heard, but it's just, they're, 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 you're just crammed into this tiny space. And sometimes literally the only thing that I can have is like this tiny little, Kindle or or my iPad or even iPhone sometimes to get that digital reading done. And there's a post that Dave will link to in the show notes that I talk a little bit more in depth about my digital reading process. But one of the things I love about it, and I know Dave does this too, is the ability to highlight in the book. You can also add notes in, but I don't tend to do that as much. I just tend to do the highlights. And then you can export those and have your own little system of capturing those notes of the books that you've read. And so if I do interview someone on a book of theirs, they're coming on my show, I have that as some of the most important nuggets that I took away from reading their book. Dave mentioned the process of sense-making and sharing. This has been so powerful for me. And someone who's inspired me a lot, who Dave, I know, has been on your show before, is John Stepper, who coined the phrase, working out loud. And it can seem so simple. Oh, yeah, I just read a book and then you share it with someone. But it really is a radical kind of transparency. It also requires vulnerability, especially if it's something that is a topic that challenges us a little bit, which how great is that when we can pick up a book that causes us to think differently about something or causes us to want to be better in some way of our life that includes fiction books by the way a lot of the the people that we read about the characters can help us want to be better or change our minds about things and so that wrestling with it that sense making and it might happen in conversation it might happen by writing a journal that only you are ever going to read or maybe it's something that goes online and it's a blog post that you can share and then other people can comment on i mean that's that is a wonderful thing about having the courage to work out loud whatever that you know whatever However, much of a risk you want to take in that area, but that really is what helps me remember things. It's that recalling. And in fact, Dave, one other episode I'd like to mention that would help people. If you want to be better at recalling things, go back and listen to the episode on retrieval practice with Pooja Agarwal, because that is all about how we can remember things better. And so the more that I talk about episodes or the names of the people who have come on my show or the names of the people that have written the books, the better I am at building this network of knowledge that can help me be better. And then, as a leader, can help other people be better too. So, and then if you ever have a chance, think about creating a little bit of an informal book club. Those kinds of conversations can really evoke a lot of opportunities for change and reflection and help you remember those things better as well.
0: The big thing I hear both of us saying on this is do something with it, right? Whether it's writing an article, talking to your team about it, whatever do something with it versus just setting the book down and going on to the next book. I'd much rather read a smaller number of books and then actively do something with it in conversation than reading a large number of books. So Tiago, I hope that's helpful to you and others as you think about how to tackle your reading and to make your reading and learning useful. Let's go next to the question here from Robert. Robert wrote in and said, I'm a faculty member at a university applying for an administrative role as a dean. I have lots of faculty experience, but almost no experience as an administrator. If I land an interview, how do I make my leadership strategy clear without being overbearing? Any other advice on making a big transition like this? Well, I'm going to toss this first to someone who is a faculty member and has become a dean.
1: Yes, I'm an expert at it. I've been doing it for years and years, decades now. Yeah, decades, so you, yes.
0: you, you'll know the perfect answer for Robert.
1: <laughs> one of the things David and I were talking about before we came on to record was that we try not to mention time-based things in our episodes. And this is one of those I can't really answer the question because I do want people to know as of this recording, I'm still relatively new and I'm learning so much. Let's talk first about the interview process I didn't have to interview for my role. They sort of expanded a role that I already have, but I certainly sit on my share of search committees and I do have some thoughts around this. The biggest mistake that I see people make in interviews is nervous talking and going way, way, way beyond people's normal attention span. (laughs) So if you get asked a question, I would answer it as concisely as you can, make one point and perhaps tell one short story but leave them wanting more. Make it such that if they want to know more, they'll certainly ask you more questions. Get them curious. Do not tell the entire story of every time this has ever happened to you. It doesn't allow enough people. Usually, these search committees are larger. Usually, they're from lots of different departments on the campus. So, you want to be able to tell lots of parts of your story instead of just one long story or a couple long stories and They want to be able to have an opportunity to ask you something. So short, concise, ask and answer just what was asked. Don't bring up the other thing it relates to. Let them do that. Let them get curious and let them explore with you. And then you were also talking about this tension between when we have this vision for what things could look like versus not knowing some of the politics going on behind the scenes where we may inadvertently offend someone without even realizing it. Sometimes it even just comes down to the word that you choose to use, tends to trigger people, and they have a lot of baggage around that. So in terms of the vision, it can really depend a lot, but hopefully you have someone who's the hiring manager or someone who can kind of guide you through these things. I would say error on the side of sharing less of a vision and leave lots of room for letting them know you're a curious leader and that you know organizations can be so different. And you know that an important aspect of being a new leader in an organization is having that curiosity and not coming in thinking you have all the answers. This is a delicate balance because you want to show that you have that experience, you have the credibility. So in terms of that, you can talk about in the past specific experiences you've had, I would be very careful coming across as I know how to fix this. I can come in. I could, I know exactly what this is like. I've seen this before. That's offensive, even, even though, by the way, as a side note, I have been to a lot of different institutions of higher learning. And I will say that there are a lot of commonalities. People don't want to hear that from you. They want to know that they're unique, they're distinct, their problems are Very different from anywhere you've ever been. It just needs to be one of those things that we make sure that people feel respected, that I'm not going to come in here and think I have all the answers. That's not going to be my role here. As a leader, I, I need to stay curious. A book, by the way, which is the best one I've ever seen written on this topic, is The First 90 Days. I haven't read it in a while, but that's really one that helps us sort of avoid coming right in and thinking we can make all the prescriptions that come into our head. We really have to be careful about that and maintain curiosity, it's vital.
0: Robert, another thing you asked about is how do you apply for a position where you don't have a lot of experience for it? And a lot of us have run into that in our careers. Uh, You have the advantage in higher education of there is certainly a lot of folks who go into administration who have been in faculty and haven't had an administrative experience. And so that's a bit more of the norm than might be in other industries. One invitation I'd make to you is to consider what you've done in the past. And I know a little bit more about you, Robert, that you didn't put in your question here. You have done a ton of things that, while not technically administrative roles, are the skill sets that an administrator would be doing. When you think about things like navigating classroom projects, uh, working with students, running conferences, doing all kinds of things in the academic world, there's a whole list of things that we would call transferable skills. That, no, are not 100% what are going to line up for the administrator role that you'll develop as you go. But there's certainly a whole bunch of things that if you pulled that job description for what the dean job position is designed for, and you looked at your experience and did some thinking on what are the skills you've developed over your career thus far, and the situations where you've done things like that, I bet there's a lot more that lines up there than may happen at first glance. And doing a little bit of thinking about that in advance of what are the skills you've already developed and how does that transfer would be a wonderful place also to focus on in an interview with a committee. Mm If these questions got you thinking today, several related episodes I'd recommend to you. One of them is episode 129, how to create a personal knowledge management system. Bonnie and I on that episode walked through in detail, which we talked about for a few minutes in response to Tiaga's question, uh, how to create a personal knowledge management system through the Seek Sense share model from Harold Jarkey. And it is, I think, really a necessity for most leaders to be able to have done some thinking about what the system's going to be, it, it used to be easy. You would just read whatever the newspaper was 20 years ago that everyone read and the key magazine publication. Today, there are so many different information sources that are coming our way through books, through things we find on social media. Someone sends us an article on email and says, hey, I know your clients would benefit from this, or this is something to share with your team. And you get another resource, another way. We talk in detail in episode 129 on how do you create a system to handle everything that's coming in, the seek part, make sense of it, and then with the things that are then helpful to go out and share that with with others to do something with it rather than just collecting information. Episode 129 will help you to do that better. I'd also recommend how to lead a 100-year life with my guest Linda Gratton on episode 266. Linda is a top thinker in the management space, and she has done an incredible amount of work of thinking about how Our work is changing as we age and as many of us live longer and thinking about the 100-year life and how does that affect work. And it's no longer for a lot of us and increasingly more, more people, not just the three traditional phases of life we thought of, of school and then work and then retirement. For so many people, that is changing, and organizations are starting to adapt to that as well. It's much more complicated and exciting for most of us, but it does bring change too. Episode 266, how to start thinking about not only your life, but how you are relating to others in the lens of living a 100-year life. Also helpful to you will be episode 306, five steps to hold people accountable with Jonathan Raymond. We mentioned the accountability dial earlier. Jonathan's process for being able to hold people accountable, both in positive ways and also for constructive criticism, super helpful. Five steps that will help you to take the first step. If you, like Susan, are noticing some performance challenges in the organization for whatever reason they're emerging, that is a great place to start. I'd also recommend how to make your work more visible. Bonnie mentioned John Stepper, who joined me on episode 397. We talked about Working Out Loud, his book of the same title. And it is uh, just a fabulous model for how to start sharing what you're learning and working out loud, as he says. And so many opportunities to take what you're learning and reading and to share it with others and to do it throughout organizations. Episode 397 is a framework for that. And then finally, we mentioned the work of Pooja Agarwal. How to help people learn through powerful teaching. That was the topic of episode 421. If you'd like to learn a bit more about the science of helping people to learn, and as a leader, what you can do in order to support that Episode 421 is a good starting point for you. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. We've been going weekly as a show since 2011 and have tackled so many topics with experts over the years. We have categorized all of them by topic. If you set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com, it'll give you access to the entire library inside the free membership searchable by topic so you can seek the thing that's causing you a challenge right now that maybe you're struggling with that will be relevant to your learning following that seek sense share model also part of the free membership is a section called courses there are several courses there now one of them is 10 ways to empower the people you lead so many of the lessons from the show are embedded in that course there's also a course on how to create your personal vision and a new course on how to create team guidelines that we recently put up there. All of those are absolutely free. Set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. Next week, Nancy Duarte returns to the show to teach us how to influence executives more effectively. Don't miss it. Have a fabulous week and see you next Monday.